What happened when a school board member quoted the Bible? The school board told her, you can't do this, it violates the Establishment Clause. Also, what can we learn from the story of Isaac and Rebecca to help us meet the Lord? They talk about how she was kind and um, how she was committed um, in her relationship with the Lord and in following Him to be Isaac's bride. And why are cell phones such an important part of kids' lives? Teenagers and preteens with phones get addicted to the feeling of being important. Then, childhood memories of the 1960s. How do the fears of that time relate to us now? I just didn't understand the gravity of it at that point in time. I just knew it. this must be bad. It's the weekend of October 21st and 22nd. I'm Jeff Shambly, and this is The Stand Radio. First on the list, a stand-up Christian school board member is told to stand down. AFN Newscast Coordinator Chris Woodward is following the story of Heather Brooks. Hi, Chris. Hey, thank you very much. Give us the big picture here. Yeah, Heather Brooks is a Christian and a member of the Peoria School Board in Arizona. She got active in politics several years ago, and like a lot of people, she's civil-minded. She wants to do something to help her community, and so she took it upon herself to run for and win a school board seat. She cares about not only her kids, but the kids in the area, so she wanted to serve on the school board. Well, at her first school board meeting, she sensed there was a lot of division, Mm. a lot of anger, a lot of resentment, not only at that school board meeting, but at many of the school board meetings in Arizona and throughout the country. Certainly, we've covered a lot of those uh, situations, and we'll continue to cover those situations. Uh, But in an effort to help herself during an interaction with the community, uh, Rooks decided to recite Joshua 1-9 to herself. She said it out loud, but she was speaking more or less to herself. And for those not familiar with it, in the King James, Joshua 1-9 says, among other things, Be strong and of a good courage, be not afraid, neither be thou dismayed, for the Lord thy God is with thee wherever thou goest. She did that, and she felt it worked. It helped her get through that situation, and it was a practice that she continued until many people started to show up at future school board meetings mm. to speak out against her doing so, and it reached a point where the school board told her, you can't do this, okay. it violates the Establishment Clause. She mm. has lawyered up, and her attorneys say that's not the case at all. As you mentioned, she's being represented in the lawsuit by First Liberty. Her attorney, Andrew Gould, says there's nothing wrong with what she's doing. Let's listen to his comments. The Peoria City Council, which, you know, this is a Peoria school district, They open every session with a prayer. So does the Arizona State Legislature. Abraham Lincoln cited the Bible. Uh, Barack Obama, Joe Biden, George Washington, Franklin Roosevelt, they all cited Bible scriptures. So this is a tradition. It's part of the American political tradition. There is nothing here that violates the Establishment Clause. Chris, what is she seeking in this lawsuit? Two things. Uh, Heather is asking for a declaration that her reading of a verse does not violate the Establishment Clause and that she has a right under the First Amendment Free Speech Clause and Free Exercise Clause to read her verse. Hmm. Two, uh, she's looking for an injunction in joining the board or anyone from taking adverse action against her for exercising her constitutional (laughs) rights. Well, if there's nothing illegal with what she's doing, then what's at the bottom of all of these complaints? Uh, A couple of things. Again, I would say, you know, there are a lot of people out there, unfortunately, in this year and and during these times that don't want anything to do with the Bible or God, uh, you know, atheism and uh, people of other religions, things like that. Uh, But also, 
I think, and this may actually be more of the situation here, many people um, are completely unaware of what the Constitution says and does not say. Right. Uh, and they fall hook, line, and sinker for whatever someone tells them the Constitution says. Mm-hmm. Someone told this school board or school board officials, well, you know, that violates the Establishment Clause, right. uh, when, you know, there are many people out there that would point out that the Establishment Clause prohibits government from making any law respecting an establishment of religion. Right. A school board, as you know, is is part of the government, but it doesn't make law like yeah, a legislative yeah. body, a state legislature or Congress. Um, so the st- school board member is not making a law respecting or disrespecting a, a religion here. It's similar to the age-old argument over church and state separation. Yes, yes. A lot of people are like, oh, we can't have anything to do with the state and the church. But there's a lot of people, as you know, that would say, you know, Jefferson's words in a letter to a bunch of Baptists is not in a founding document, yeah. uh, and and it's more or less telling um, the state to stay away from any church matters. So I think a lot of people just have no idea what the Constitution says. It's like if you repeat something often enough, people will believe it yes. eventually. And yeah. I can't tell you how many times I've um, taken you know, to my own social media post to urge people to read and study the Constitution for themselves, Mm -hmm. because oftentimes a news outlet will tell you, well, the president says he has authority to do this, but they never, like, investigate or Hmm. counter that claim. And that's why people Hmm. need to know what your government tells you you're allowed to do because you're a citizen. All right. Well, thanks for your time today, Chris. Thank you. And you can follow the story of Heather Rooks at AFN.net. One of the foundational doctrines of the Christian faith is that we will one day see the Lord Jesus Christ. And it can be said that one of the main goals of the Christian life is to be prepared to meet Jesus. Well, there's a new book by that title, Preparing to Meet Jesus. And here to tell us more about that is The Stand staff writer, Hannah Metter. Hi, Hannah. Hi, how are you doing today? Great. Tell us about this new book. Yes. So I actually reviewed this book um, for the magazine, and it is called Preparing to Meet Jesus, as you said, and it is by... Anne Graham Lotz and Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. Um, So the daughter of Billy Graham and the granddaughter Mm -hmm. of Billy Graham. And this book is a 21-day challenge um, to encourage believers um, to kind of go from their salvation um, to a continual relationship with Jesus and the hope. um, They refer to it as, you know, the bridegroom Mm -hmm. um, for the day that we come face to face with Jesus. So is this a devotional book? Would you put it in that category of a devotional book or is this? I would. Um, They do. It's it's broken down, like I said, in 21 days. So it has a verse, a little bit of a story slash tie-in. Okay. um, And then a guided prayer at the end. So um, it was really encouraging. I love anything by the Grahams. Yes, they've got quite a ministry, both of these ladies. Yes. So this is really um, sort of... Uh, drawing from the illustration of Genesis chapter 24, when Abraham is sending his servant to go back to his people to find a bride for his son. And Absolutely. so they're really drawing from that typology, aren't they? Yes. Um, it's a lot about the uh, the characteristics that we see in Rebecca, who the Lord sent for um, to be the wife of Isaac. And um, I thought it was a really interesting take. Um, I've read that passage before, but yeah. never kind of tied that into, um, you know, my personal walk with, mm-hmm. with Christ. And a few of the ones that they mention, you know, they talk about how she was kind, how she was authentic, and um, how she was committed um, in her relationship. 
relationship with the Lord and in following him to be Isaac's bride. So each characteristic is explained. Yes. Uh, and then the believer or the, the person reading this material is going to imitate or emulate that mm-hmm. characteristic in their life. Absolutely. Is yeah. there a study guide at the end of this? Could this be used as a, a group study or something like that? To my knowledge, there isn't like a study guide per se, but I think it would be an excellent tool maybe for some women, like maybe a Sunday school or, or friend group mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. to go through together um, and just be encouraged by this woman, um, this biblical Woman. Really struck you about the book as being something that you thought this is this is really my favorite aspect of the what she's done with this material. Um, like I said, I think that it was just that I had never heard this concept before. Okay. And so it was really cool to me to see that. Um, and also it is interesting because they do pull in some, you know, family tales, some some little short stories about um Rachel Ruth talks about her grandmother and then um, Anne Graham talks about her family and, and her grandparents. So you kind of see a Christian heritage throughout it as well um, and just how their family has been used by the Lord. Well, once again, the title of the book is Preparing to Meet Jesus, a 21-day challenge to move from salvation to transformation. Uh, the authors are Anne Graham Lotz and her daughter, Rachel Ruth Lotz Wright. It's a 2023 release from Multnomah and it's available at christianbook.com. Hannah, thanks so much for sharing with us. Thanks for having me. What do you do when your child says, when can I get a phone? Maybe you don't think that's such a big deal, or maybe you wonder if you've made a mistake. We're going to dive into that topic with our guest, Dr. Kathy Cook. She's a popular speaker at churches, conferences, and schools, and is the founder and president of Celebrate Kids based in Fort Worth, Texas. Dr. Cook, welcome to the program. I'm glad to be here. Thanks for the invitation. Well, let's get right into it with the big question. When should parents give their children a phone? Right. Such a good question. I love answering it. Because the answer is when they need it, they can get it. Um, the, the simplest answer is when they need a phone, they get a phone, perhaps, or there's alternatives that we can discuss today as well. They don't get a phone when they want a phone. They don't get a phone when they whine about not having a phone. They don't get a phone when they lie to you and tell you that everybody has one except <laughs> me, woe is me. They get a phone when they've earned it through proper character and they prove that they're responsible and you believe as the parent that there's a reason for them to stay connected to you, those would be some of the reasons that I would say justify uh, Mm. purchasing a phone for a child. Recent studies have shown that uh, nearly half of 11 to 17-year-olds get as many as 237 prompts a day on their phone. (laughs) Some studies show as high as 5,000 prompts in 24 hours. Why are these phones so addictive? Yeah. That's the reason, right? I mean, a reason that that study is absolutely remarkable and just frightening. And I'm really, really sad because it tells you that kids are overwhelmed by that. They are distracted by that. So again, we could do a whole interview on that. As far as addiction, they're addicted for the same reasons that we are. There's an adrenaline thing that happens, the dopamine drop in the brain when you get a ting or a bing or a, Mm -hmm. you know, vibration. I I also want to say that phones cause children and teens and us to feel important. And I think Mm. teenagers and preteens with phones get addicted to the feeling of being important. The phone can cause us to believe a false narrative about our value. 
What are some of the character uh, marks that we should look for in our children before we give them a phone of their own? Right. No, thanks for asking that. Let me think. Um, well, certainly responsibility. Uh, mm, are okay. they responsible? You know, do they lose everything? Do they break everything? If they're irresponsible and if they don't accept consequences for their mistakes, um, then I think those would be red flags to me. You know, if I were parenting this generation, I, th- I would also look for the character quality of other centeredness mm. um, because phones can cause us to become very selfish and very self-centered. So if a child is already self-centered and you allow them to have a phone, they will just become more self-centered and you're going to have a much harder time ever getting them to turn toward the Christ-like attribute of other-centeredness. And I would say the same thing for gratitude and joy. Mm, Um, Phones can cause us to become very entitled. We can be demanding. We think we deserve what we want when we want it right now because of the click of the mouse and, you know, everything that's on our phones. If you've given kids a phone with everything on it and, and you don't have to do that, but if you've done that, then entitlement is a strong possibility. It's one of the biggest complaints I hear about from parents. And so, I would look for gratitude. And if a child okay. isn't thankful, um, isn't optimistic toward the things that they already own and taking care of the things that they already own, then again, that would be a red flag for me. And so would joy. Um, phones cause us to think we can be happy all the time. We only answer the phone if we want to. We only have games on the phone that we want to play. We can win any game that we do play. And so we believe this lie that happiness is our right. Mm-hmm. So if you have kids that are already uh, critical and man, just complaining all the time when things don't go their way. And, you know, you didn't make me happy. You didn't give me what, what I want. Well, then they don't get a phone. They yeah. got to turn that tide and come back toward a joy that's consistent because it's about Jesus. And then maybe I would consider uh, purchasing a phone and letting them use it. I would never give them a phone. And, okay. th- and that's an important point. Maybe they, they don't get a phone unless they buy it and pay for all of the packaging and the cell signal and all of that. No, we purchase a phone or give them an older phone um, when we believe that they've deserved it and need it. And we don't ever say, here's your phone. Here is my phone that I am letting you use for a season. I can always take it away. Let's say that we have an elementary age child and you know we're looking down the road at getting a phone for them. What should those initial conversations with the child include? Um, need versus want. Okay. And, and this this starts when kids are little with, you know, I, I need, you know, a, an ice cream cone. You know, you start teaching children <laughs> as early as you can the difference between need and want. And so if you're talking about, you know, you may earn a phone someday with your behavioral choices. In other words, you don't, I don't recommend you tell a child when you're 13, you get a phone. Because what if they are 13 and they're still irresponsible, impulsive, and rude and argumentative? No, no, no. You, chronological age is not, should not, in my opinion, be the only thing that you look at. It's again, do I need a phone? Does my child need a phone? And has my child um, proven ready for the responsibility of a phone based on the heart um, character? I think you make sure you have conversations about the fact that we will own it. Um, Oh, and you know, another point that I really like making with young people is make sure that you control the phone, don't let it control you. Mm, Okay. So if I were talking before a child has a phone, I would talk about what it looks like if you're controlled by tech. Like if you already have a child controlled by gaming because they can't turn it off, controlled by, you know, uh, YouTube videos and they binge watch, even if it's good stuff, but you know that it's controlling them. Those are those are kind of scary signs because that means okay. that their brain is being wired to expect the world to work like that. 
And then I think another part of the conversation, like you and I have said, is that, you know, we will decide if and when you get one based on your character. You can't, you know, bribe us or complain to us enough. You know, it's going to be about your choices that would cause us to decide that we're going to loan you a phone. Yeah, well, that all gets back to good parenting skills, I think, uh, yes. from, from yes. what I'm hearing from you. Um, in terms of the technology itself, uh, are we limited just iPhones and Androids, or are there other options that don't include all of the enticements that a child might face? Uh, no, there are, there are alternatives. And, you know, the first alternative, and just bear with me here, this might sound just absolutely really old-fashioned and crazy, but the, the first alternative is to you know, parent up, to be the parent who is with the kid and who is paying attention and who said, like, I don't know, like, I'm, I'm old enough to remember back when I was a child, uh, the rule in our neighborhood was when the streetlights come on, go home. So I grew up in a suburb of a major city and we were allowed to play outside and it was free and it was, you know, our parents, praise the Lord, didn't have to worry about much. And so we were allowed to play outside. And as soon as the streetlights came on, we all knew that that was time to head home. And so we had uh, boundaries and expectations that were communicated with force and with love. And we knew that violating those um, expectations would, would get us into trouble and there would be a consequence that we would pay for the choice that we made. So an alternative is to uh, teach your children to um, believe you, to obey you, and to have other ways of connecting with them. Back in the day, you know, if we wanted to go home, we would ask the, the host of the home, may I borrow your phone and call my mom? Mm -hmm. There's nothing wrong with that. But kids feel shamed and embarrassed. And, and that's just, I think, a very sad kind of thing. Um, I do like the idea of a sibling phone. So let's say that you have um, two, three, four kids who are reaching that preteen teen level and you believe there's a legitimate need. Maybe your daughter's going to babysit next door and there's no landline. Certainly she needs a phone. Maybe your son is you know, part of a cross-country team, and it really is safest for him to have a phone with him on, on, on the, the days of the meets or, or whatever the case may be. Um, so there, there's a sibling phone, one phone for three kids, and they sign it out and they reserve it and first come, first serve. And that's part of, you know, teaching responsibility and um, other-centeredness again and gratitude to at least have access to a phone. There are smart watches that some parents have found helpful and a watch can be a better option for younger children because there's no, they don't need a pocket to put it in. They can't lose it to the same extent. And there's a way to control smartwatches as well. And then I'm a huge fan of something called a Wise phone. Yes. And a Wise phone is created by Techless Wireless. And Techless Wireless, um, a Wise phone, has um, phone call and texting capabilities. It has the basic apps that you might feel a teenager would need, a calendar, a flashlight, a camera. Um, there's just the basics, but there's no World Wide Web, there's no app store, there's no social media, there's no internet, and there never will be. You cannot add those things to a phone. And what's nice about the Wise phone is it looks just like um, an Android or, or a smartphone. It has mm -hmm. the same weight, feel, texture, so no child is embarrassed to, to have that phone. In, in fact, many of them have thanked their parents for the phone because they cannot go to the social media sites that they know are destroying their friends, you know, attitudes and character. So huge recommendation there. And I appreciate a chance to mention that. Yeah, we'll put the link to uh, the Techless website on our podcast page. We're speaking with Dr. Kathy Cook. She's the founder and president of Celebrate Kids, and her website is CelebrateKids.com. She also has a book on much of the content that you've heard today. Uh, the book is called Screens and Teens, and it's available at ChristianBook.com. Great insight, Dr. Cook. Thanks so much for sharing your time with us today. 
I'm glad you invited me on. Thanks for the good questions. How do you deal with a world that you can't control? Rusty Benson, staff writer for The Stand, had a good perspective on that in a recent article. As I went to visit Rusty, he showed me his home office that was filled with musical instruments and family relics. I asked him about one particular item that was hanging above his desk. He told me about his grandfather. He was a little older, and he was wounded in the last battle of World War I, which was the Battle of the Argonne Forest. And this is what they gave him. They didn't get Purple Hearts during World War I, was my understanding. And this is a certificate oh, wow. that he uh, signed by Woodrow Wilson, John Price Mason, Private, uh, 115th Infantry, served with honor and was wounded in action. Spent a year in the hospital in New York before he came back, married my grandmother, and they had my mother. I wanted to know more about the events that shook his own childhood in the 1960s. I think what you have to understand about the 1960s is though it was a transition period. So there were two 1960s, what it began with and what it ended with. And what it began with was just a very safe and secure and innocent and free uh, kind of in environment. Uh, it just felt like the movies that you've seen, you know, uh, almost Mayberry-ish kind of existence. Mayberry's a mighty fine town, Mr. Williams, but I reckon there's bound to be a few rotten apples in every barrel. Yeah, there's a rotten apple right here in this courthouse. <laughs> oh, I don't know, Mr. Williams. Ain't no use to run yourself down like that. We were going to visit uh, my, my dad's, one of my dad's uh, army buddies from World War II. Uh, so this was the vacation, and we, we jumped in our... Um, you know, chestnut-colored Ford Fairlane, no air conditioner. Th th that was a total extra in those days, you know. And uh, headed out by way of Oklahoma and on through states that I probably just slipped through until we finally got to Portland, Oregon, where my dad's army buddy lived and visited with his family. I actually spent most of that trip going out to Portland, uh, huddled up with my uh, baseball magazines. I had, I had built me a nest in the floorboard behind my mom and dad. They were in the front seat, and my sister had the whole back seat. I had the, I had the floorboard, my pillow, my you know, <laughs> quilt, whatever I need, and three or four baseball magazines with uh, Roger Maris and Mickey Mantle and Willie Mays on yeah. the front cover. You know, yeah. it's all I needed. You know, that was a lot more interesting to me at the time than Yellowstone. <laughs> Good evening, my fellow citizens. This government, as promised, has maintained the closest surveillance of the Soviet military buildup on the island of Cuba. The threat of nuclear attack, the, the uh, kind of the... Uh, Arch enemies being the Russians, something, something kind of never changed, did they? And uh, and so that was just in the air everywhere. So there was along the time period that I'm talking about, there was the beginnings, even for a child, you know, the beginnings of those kinds of 
fears in the air about a nuclear attack and what that would look like because I was still very young. I was only 12 or so at, at that time, so I had less awareness of those kinds of things than, uh, than I did later on when I was in high school and even first year or so of college, you know. Yeah. So I... I I think I think the adults obviously shared the same kinds of fears and apprehensions about what could possibly happen. I just didn't understand the gravity of it at that point in time. I just knew it, this must be bad. How do you think believers can come alongside neighbors and coworkers who are living in fear? We're, we're in a situation where our nation is yeah. is in upheaval in a number of different ways. So talk to me a little bit about how you see the role of believers in this environment. Yeah, that's a, I think that's a theological question. Or has its, the answer at least has its roots in your theology. I don't think there's any particular formula, one, two, three. Right. There's ample evidence from the scripture, I think, that God is going to have the last word no matter what happens, you know. And I'm kind of, a, uh, the passage that comes to my mind, that's really been on my mind for the last couple of years, is that passage in First Peter 1, that talks about how Christ is uh, is our living hope and our inheritance, you know, that undefiled, uh, imperishable, unfading uh, inheritance. And that very passage even talks about the fact that you're going to have trials and you're going to have uh, difficulties in life, but even those things are going to be proven to be wonderful things uh, one day, and you'll understand that God was indeed um, in control of those things for your good. I've always looked at these experiences in the 1960s, in particular to this one, uh, like this, that we often say how bad things are right now, and they are. I wouldn't argue with anybody about that. Things are very difficult in our country morally in so many ways right now, but you know what? They've always been like that, not only here, but just worldwide. It's a result of the fall. And, you know, I can look back to this and say, well, you know, we're not being threatened in the Western Hemisphere by nuclear bombs. We're not grabbing people and sending them to concentration camps at this point. So let's get this thing in perspective. Yes, it could end bad. That's always true. But... Uh, our long-suffering and merciful God is going to have the last word, and it's going to be a good, gospel-filled word. You can read Rusty Benson's article, The Good Old Days Reconsidered, in this month's The Stand magazine. Coming up next week, Lizette Miller of Samaritan's Purse will join us to talk about Operation Christmas Child's celebration of 30 years of ministry. And Pastor Bill Bradford will show us some creative and fun ways his church uses to remember Reformation Day on October 31st. If you like what you've heard today, it's just a sample of what you'll get every month when you subscribe to The Stand magazine. We encourage you to get your free six-month subscription. Just visit afa.net slash the stand. And if you have any questions or comments about anything you've heard today, just email us at thestand at afa.net. And you can subscribe to our podcast when you visit afr.net slash podcast. Until next time, I'm Jeff Shambly. Thanks for listening. <laughs>